This week, we're talking about augmented reality. It's increasingly entering our lives without us really noticing it. From Snapchat filters to Google animals that you can search on a web browser, we're starting to see new ways in which creators are designing these layers over our real world. And those can be experienced as images through our phones, through augmented audio, through our headphones, and soon through AR glasses. And let's be clear, there are definitely some benefits to AR. I think it was someone who said this once upon a time when I was at a, at a seminar that, you know, VR closes us all off from each other. AR instead is having us look up and at the world around us. That was Susan Cummings. We'll be hearing more from her later. The worldwide value of the AR market is set to exceed $50 billion by 2024. And that's a number that's only expected to grow over time and one that far supersedes the virtual reality market by comparison. Ultimately, there are millions of smartphones out there that have AR capability. And so distribution of these experiences is significantly easier with a much larger potential audience. I'm Shahani Fernando, and this is the Story Futures Academy podcast. I find myself floating, floating, floating. Welcome to Virtual Reality, or VR. Right now, we've got the Earth. I don't know what it's like to stand where I'm standing. Just look around you. You are going to undergo many different kinds of reactions. For a maker, AR is pretty approachable. For instance, Facebook's Spark AR platform, their tool for creating AR effects and filters, has over 400,000 users in 190 countries. And recently, the New York Times announced a partnership with them to bring journalism to Instagram's audience. Equally, Snapchat has been supporting creators using their Lens Studio for some time. And due to some of these platforms' scale and reach, there's definitely money to be made in this world. But so far, narrative AR projects have been few and far between. We're talking to three people today who are breaking boundaries in the AR space, who see long-term potential in new forms of storytelling that bring together things like social gameplay, geolocation, live-action acting, and dynamic characters that can respond to real-world environments. In the second half, we'll be talking to Susan Cummings and Tavi Keller from Fictioneers, who've been making Wallace and Gromit's The Big Fix-Up in partnership with Aardman Animations. But first, here's Alex Fleetwood, head of Niantic's London studio. I'm sitting at a table with some friends there's a, a white plinth platform in front of me, some brightly coloured, oddly shaped pieces and an iPad propped up. I pick up a piece, an eagle, I touch it to the plinth and I stack it on the top and suddenly an eagle appears in the world that's um, on the screen of the tablet. I pick up another piece, an octopus, uh, I stack that, balancing it precariously on top of the eagle. Uh, and then another piece, uh, a white cross piece that can act as a kind of bridging platform, and I put that on top. And suddenly, magically, a cross, an eagle-octopus hybrid appears in the world before me. I have this sense of a tower in balance on the plinth and an ecosystem in balance in this virtual world I'm creating. So that's Alex describing Beasts of Balance, 
a game he created at the studio he founded called Sensible Object, and a game that my kids and I actually love to play. It blends these beautifully crafted physical pieces with a digital world on a tablet that responds to your real-world moves. Sensible Object was acquired by Niantic, the company behind trailblazing AR games such as Pokemon Go, Ingress, and more recently Harry Potter's Wizards Unite. Alex is now head of studio at Niantic in London. Alex, great to have you here. Thanks for having me on. For those who don't know too much about Niantic, what, what is the mission of the company? Yeah, so Niantic is a company with a mission to enable players to explore the world around them, uh, to take exercise and to engage socially with other people in the real world. Niantic players have walked, I think the last count was upwards of 25 billion kilometers. And, you know, of course, then being able to get together and, and raid or hack portals with our friends in, in real life, you know, these real world social activities, that's a very special kind of play and one that's very close to, to my heart as a designer. And so, you know, Niantic was was founded by John Hankey, who, you know, worked on mapping technology, uh, which formed the basis for Google Maps and Google Earth. But he was interested in this intersection of maps, games and social. Mm. Tell us a little bit about what this real world platform is that the Niantic games work on. What Niantic were able to do is, you know, having built mapping technology was to consider how a more video game-like real-world experience could exist. And so that's, I think, one of the important cores of the Niantic real-world platform is that it enables creative teams to build real-world experiences at a global scale, to use that geolocated technology in games like Pokemon Go, which have been incredibly successful. And then what Niantic has been really investing in and exploring through internal development, but also through acquisitions of companies like 60.ai is augmented reality. So the ability to see the world through a camera, to have a computer see the world, and to have that computer's uh, vision of the world uh, create things like a, a machine-readable map of the world that we can use to create more realistic and engaging experiences. And that's anything from characters knowing that they you know might be running behind certain objects to maybe mm -hmm. how a surface might bounce or you know i suppose there's any number of ways in which this actually manifests itself within a augmented reality experience humans are very clever at inferring information about what's going on in the world mm. what's in front of or behind an object object permanence is something that comes in for kids when they're very young but for a computer, we're starting from scratch there. So the work that our research team has been publishing recently around mono-depth and occlusion and the way that's feeding into features in the games like Reality Blending, those are huge advances in moving us to a more authentic experience of character in augmented reality. You know, we're starting to see these virtual characters feel a lot more real because they are living in the scene in a more realistic way. They're not floating mm. in that kind of slightly disembodied AR way. They, they start to yeah, have much more character and personality. So do you see a future when anyone can kind of develop games for this platform or is there a sort of vision for what you might do with it? Absolutely. You know, the goal of the Niantic Real World platform is ultimately over time to be widely available to developers who want to create geolocated or augmented reality or some combination of those you know, experiences that, that utilize that technology. And you know, Niantic is 
in in the early stages of making its platform available to uh, third parties. The Niantic Creators Program launched, and now creators can access the platform, and in some cases also funding and support to make experiences with the platform. And and how has AR come on from the early days of Pokemon Go? You know, what are the features you've added, and what are we able to do now? That we couldn't do even, you know, two years ago. So, you know, Niantic has a substantial research team based here in London, looking at the cutting edge of computer vision and AI research. Pokemon Go is a place where there's been a couple of really exciting evolutions that have reached players. Uh, the first of those was a multiplayer AR experience. So something that's been a big frontier is this ability to look upon and interact with and play in a shared scene. So we're all pointing our cameras at the same view and we can all see Mm. the same virtual objects populating that view and interact with them in real time. So this is tremendously sophisticated and challenging stuff. The team moved through a research phase. It was then prototyped. There's a video online called Codename Neon, which shows this in, in action. And now it's reached the feature stage. So the, the Pokemon feature there is a buddy feature. So you can now in Pokemon Go have an AR buddy that you feed and interact with and generally take care of. Uh, provides you with all kinds of rich in-game rewards as well as being a, a very cute, fun friend. Mm-hmm. And now you can see your buddies uh, in this multiplayer mode and actually kind of see them interact with one another and, and, and play together. You've recently announced this exciting partnership with Punch Drunk, who also run Writer's Rooms for us at Story Futures Academy. Is there anything you can tell us about that partnership? So, you know, Niantic's partnership with Punch Drunk is multifaceted. The goal is to develop multiple projects that will reinvent storytelling for a 21st century audience and and further expand this horizon of interactive entertainment and and real-world games. So, you know, Punch Drunk, a company whose work I've known for a very long time and great admirers of the creative team, constant innovators and and experimenters, and they have a vision for real-world storytelling and world-building and immersion. And those are all values and uh, experiential objectives that are, are very closely shared with Niantic. Obviously, Punch Drunk have unique capabilities in creating these richly cinematic worlds where audiences can explore and touch and smell the environment where the immersion in a fantastical reality is incredibly intense. And the question of how that can be achieved at planet scale is a very, very interesting one. And, uh, you know, internal teams have been collaborating now for some time to try to generate new experiences that merge the physical and digital in novel ways. So um, the potential of that collaboration is huge. I, in my view, I'm tremendously excited that, that it's undergoing very exciting. So I'm really interested in the sorts of skills that, um, you know, your team and people that you're looking for might need to have in this new world. You know, mm. one of the things we're trying to do, obviously, is is create pathways for people from traditional film and TV into immersive worlds. Mm-hmm. And often there's a challenge of making that crossover, as you say, from, say, linear scripting to thinking in a more spatial context. Mm. You know, for, for future makers, what's your advice in terms of the sorts of skills that you need and the makeup of teams? A good place to start is to look at the structure of a, a games team. 
you need front-end Unity creative skills in your team. So making 3D assets, being able yeah. to create shaders, being able to code in Unity so to make those environments responsive and interactive. Uh, but you also need back-end skills, so the ability to write server code so that you can have many players having their location tracked, having the in-game instances of what appears where. It's a little bit more complex than a lot of augmented reality work where that server aspect isn't so necessary often because you're making an experience which is for one person in, in mm. one place. And then if you look at the creative roles that feed into that, there's obviously game design or systems design, you know, somebody who's going to take a creative role, which isn't just about linear narrative, but is also about multiplayer interactivity. And certainly, you know, in, in terms of storytelling, I think, you know, narrative designer is a term which has got a lot of uh, traction in the games industry now. And I absolutely is how I think mm -hmm. of working with people with storytelling craft and, and writing craft. Therefore, somebody who can both create engaging characters and tell stories, but who can shape that in the context of narrative systems which deliver that experience through an interactive medium. And, and I guess the challenges in, in AR design itself, because, you, you know, you are creating something that could be played anywhere. Are there specific things you think people should think about when designing for AR versus something mm. like VR? Um, so I think a, a big component about designing for AR is you're designing experiences for the real world. And consequently, if something's happening in real life, the first thing you learn as a designer for real world experiences is to expect the unexpected. Um, your mm. players may not behave in the way you expect them to. Uh, and when you put that in the context of the real world, you have to be very mindful of safety and other people and uh, all kinds of real world practical considerations. I'd say an important part of how we approach design for augmented reality is to think about the user experience via multiple channels of input. So there is an AR version, but there's also a non-AR version. There may be a audio version for people who are, who are not sighted. You know, it's thinking about all of the different input media that you have available to you on the phone uh, and using all of them to create an uh, imaginatively rich experience that can be consistent across many different environments and use cases. Is the social aspect really important these days? Is that something that really drives audiences to, to play? It absolutely is, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people remember and refer to that first summer of Pokemon Go. You know, that was a, there was that time in, in 2016 when you couldn't go to a park without seeing <laughs> other players scurrying around and making the little circle gesture on their phone. And, you know, you, everyone felt like they were part of something bigger than themselves. And in the context of a mobile game, it's this huge uh, viral factor because seeing other players play and wanting to play with other players and, and the motivation to play socially is an enormous driver of growth and, and engagement and referrals. The commercial thing is always a massive challenge in this immersive industry, particularly um, for VR. And I think people do look to AR as, as, as being, you know, the green pasture that could provide a financial return. Is it Largely, do you think through sort of in-app purchases and scale that this can happen? Or how do you see the future of this for makers? So historically, games which enable a, a large volume of players to try it for free and then for some subset to become really engaged fans or super fans who value their engagement enough to want to pay for it has been 
a tremendously successful model. I would absolutely expect there to be many new patterns that will exist uh, and coexist with that pattern. And I do think that the question of, you know, what is an event? What is a festival? What is an immersive experience that has is ticketed in some ways? So, you know, all of those things feel right for reinvention on these new platforms. You'll notice that GoFest looks a little different this year. We've created a completely reimagined global event that's fully virtual while preserving the real feeling of community you've come to enjoy and expect out of our live event. And it's something like the Pokemon Festival. GoFest, yes, absolutely. Is that something that you do largely for the fans and to create that audience engagement? Or it could be something that was ticketed or a model of that could be monetized. Yeah. I mean, I mean, events are absolutely core to Niantic's DNA. So if you th- they've always been a part of Niantic's games uh, from Ingress onwards. GoFest has been a ticketed geolocated event. There were three. There was one in Yokohama, one in Dortmund and one in Chicago. And somewhere between 40 and 60,000 Pokemon fans attended those events in real life. Uh, they happen over a, a long weekend. You buy a ticket on your phone. There's no one checking your ticket. It's just that if you have the ticket on your phone and you're in the park, you can see and interact mm. with all of the cool extra game content that exists in that space. Um, so this year, the decision was taken to move GoFest to a remote model. So it's a global play-at-home weekend ticketed event. That's another very interesting reframing of what a festival can be. You know, if we are having a festival experience and going to GoFest, but we're going to it from our local park with our group of friends, but we're there in spirit with people around the world, this continuous kind of breaking down and reconstituting of what a live experience can be is something that's happening across Niantic and 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 I think there are huge lessons for the immersive and event sectors that can be drawn from the success of this year's GoFest. We're bringing more people together than ever before at GoFest this year. Trainers are joining from 110 countries and regions around the world. It's truly phenomenal to see the shared passion for Pokemon Go connect so many people across geographical distances, different languages and cultures. So that was John Hankey talking about GoFest earlier this year. Uh, I've got one last question for you, which is actually about something that he has been vocal about. Um, he's mm. been quoted as saying the future involves less phones and more real world interaction. Are we still going to be consuming these experiences mediated through a screen as apps? Or what's the impact of things like 5G and wearables? Yeah, so to go back to that conversation we we're having about you know AR and this machine readable map of the world, you know, once we have this AR cloud uh, and it just works and it serves up this mixed reality that looks much closer to what you see and experience in the real world, then it's a, a, a logical progression that those experiences will live not just on handheld mobile devices, but future, future devices as well, like AR glasses or maybe other kinds of wearables. And, you know, Niantic is focusing a lot of our work on the moment when AR glasses will be ready. And you know, one example of that is Niantic's partnership with Qualcomm mm. on a reference design for AR. We're setting ourselves up for a very exciting future as and when that next hardware evolution becomes truly mainstream. Very exciting. Well, we can't wait to see more and hear more from Niantic. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you, Alex. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Shahani. 
So from one set of cute characters to another. Hmm. By heck, Gromit, these job orders are really taking the biscuit. Oh. Uh. To the Spick and Spanmobile. My next guests are Susan Cummings and Tavi Keller from Fictioneers, a consortium of three companies, Tiny Rebel Games, Potato and Sugar Creative, who came together to create an AR story using Britain's best-loved animated characters, Wallace and Gromit. The project is one of the Audience of the Future demonstrators that aim to reach 100,000 audience members. Susan's background was in traditional console games, having founded Tiny Rebel Games with her partner Lee, while Tavi is the design team lead from Potato and specialises in user experience design. So let me ask you both, what is Wallace and Gromit's big fix-up? Can you describe what the experience is like? It's a traditional Wallace and Gromit story in the sense that Wallace is skint and looking for ways to make money. So he sets up a new company called Spick and Spanners. Spick and Spanners uh, has the sort of mundane remit of doing odd jobs within the neighborhood. However, he gets a phone call from a brand new character, Bernard Grubb, who's a larger than life businessman stroke politician who offers Wallace this, this opportunity of a lifetime to, to fix up all of the city of Bristol where he wants to be mayor. Grub's the name and pies are my game. I've got big ideas for my business, for this great city, for the wonders of technology. And Wallace, being Wallace, takes on the job without really understanding what it would take to handle a job of that size. And so the call is going to go out to become an employee of Wallace's company. And so the big fix-up, that's the premise, is you become an employee of Wallace's company. With my crack team at Spick and Spanners, <laughs> I can assure you, you won't be disappointed. There are jobs that are more sort of, for lack of a better term, passive. So you kind of do them, uh, send off certain contraptions and gadgets, and, and they will do the job for you. But then the real hero uh, moments are the ones where you're in this full-blown AR experience where you interact with uh, contraptions and uh, some of them are familiar, like the rocket, for example, and others are brand new. And you kind of complete this mini game moments to advance the story forward. So you'll watch that rocket land in front of you. You can anchor it wherever you are. You can make it really tiny or you can make it big 20, 30 feet in your backyard. The Act 3 finale of the story invites you to come to a location because a character is in trouble where you and your friends have to complete the story. There is a short-term pivot that's happening where we basically take in that data, the, the LiDAR scan data of Bristol, and we have put more art and, and development resource onto making it something that could be brought to you. That means it could be on your tabletop at home, like a little diorama, or it could be something more to scale in your backyard, depending on how much space you have, or in a local park. And so we're basically allowing you to have a glimpse into Bristol brought to the safety of your of your home or safe space nearby. If we're going to fix up a whole city, we're going to need a recruitment drive. Step on it, Gromit. There's not a moment to lose. To rewind a little bit in terms of the making of this piece, what did you guys do first? Was it working with Ardman on the story concept before you started getting into the technical possibilities or did the two go hand in hand, Susan? 
there's the high level remit of the fact that we wanted to tell a story narrative that would go through it, that would string everything together. It started really the same way you might make a film with a writer's room, which included a uh, creative team from Ardman and creative team from Fictioneers. Once we'd settled on this one, on Spick and Spanners, then it became yeah, a, a collaboration between Fictioneers and Ardman to try to flesh out that story. And then looking at what the different ways there might be to tell each of those things. Would it be gameplay? Would it be something best told through CG animation? Would it be a comic strip? Would it be social media calls? It needed to be something that an eight-year-old could do, a 20-year-old could do, an 80-year-old could do. You know, we're really trying to hit a really wide cross-section of people who love Wallace and Gromit. We don't want anything blocking them from enjoying that experience. And Tavi, what are the real challenges in AR for the UX, the user experience design? What are the things you really need to think about up front? So there's a lot more of these kind of variables that get introduced. Environmental challenges, uh, how much room do people have around them? Can they get behind an object? Weather, sunlight, what kind of texturing your floors and carpets are done? So how does you know the, the AR tracking and stuff work? All of those things um, pose quite interesting UX challenges for us. And the thing that we've tried to focus on is treating everyone who joins this experience as if it's their first time using AR and finding the balance between giving just enough guidance and kind of tutorials with the kind of sense of discoverability and this kind of self-exploration around these scenes and these characters. Uh, So you need to leave a little bit of room because people might just want to stop and just walk around for a bit because suddenly they're seeing a 3D object in, in a space that's otherwise familiar to them. So Tavi, I wanted to ask you about the Agile methodology, because I think that's what you've been using to manage a project like this. Explain to um, people who don't know what Agile is and how it works. Okay, simplest explanation is that you essentially work in sort of time-boxed sections, usually two weeks. And the idea of it is that you pre-plan the work for those two weeks to a point where you can be quite confident that you can deliver a specific feature or an um fix to something in that time and then we have sprint planning you have kind of sprint retrospectives to make sure that there's um, the space and the forum to kind of evaluate what went well and what didn't go well so you can kind of continuously keep learning and what that lends itself well to is at the end of each two-week period you should have something that you can show to people uh, that, hey, this is what we did in these two weeks. And then, yeah, we um, we do regular testing, usually sort of midway through a sprint to give enough time to extract all the stuff that we learned and play it back to the wider team and stuff. And with this project, as you said, you're really trying to reach a mass audience who could be all sorts of different ages and from different backgrounds. How did you test for that? Did you have a kind of sample group that spanned those things? So way back when this kind of project started, sort of in parallel to when we referred back to the kind of sessions in the writer's room, we started conducting focus groups done with families. So we had like parents come in with their children. We have USW as our research partner. Uh, so we got to have you know, really good access to, to students. And then we did a lot of really sort of crude and lo-fi paper prototypes. So we had like cardboard cutouts of Wallace and Gromit and these different contraptions and stuff. And we just move them around on a table and do silly voices and kind of see how people react to different things. And it's surprising, actually, how much you can get away from those things. Uh, you, you can learn a whole lot about how people navigate a space, how much room you might need to have around these scenes and how long different bits of story might take to be told in that kind of medium. Because something that looks like a short piece of 
story on, on paper. Once you factor in the, the fact that people might want to move around the scene and look at it from a different angle and stuff, it might actually end up being quite a bit longer than what you thought or vice versa. So it was really important for us to do that type of discovery uh, work early on. And I think that really informed then the types of media that we wanted to in- include in this experience. So it sounds kind of amazing that there are all these different things that are going to happen, you know, from comic strips to, I think, extended reality portals. Um, what's been the most innovative thing that you've built for this experience? Uh, and, and do you see lots of potential in, in ways of taking it forward in other experiences? Uh, that's clearly our, our backend technology, the, the must platform. We knew that we wanted the story to be able to be told in real time and there was nothing out there sort of fit for purpose. So we had to create the, the must platform and it's been incredibly exciting watching that come together. The, the lead on that, James Spencer, for a long time was the sort of very theoretical guy in the group who was just asking lots of questions of everybody <laughs> and, you know, lots of Google slides about how things are going to work. And I still remember, I'm sure you do too, Tabi, the first sprint that we actually got to see something on the oh, bus yes. platform. We were like, oh my God, it's, he's actually, he's, he's built it. And I should probably clarify at this point that MUST stands for multi-user storytelling. And this platform essentially what it allows us to do is it is the underlying framework that, that really delivers this whole experience and that allows us to get really creative with the way we deliver it. And that is definitely the coolest thing about this whole project is that we have this brand new technology that we've created that is purpose fit for this type of experiences. Hello there. Big lad's growing and he needs a few new body parts. I've got a list. You have a scout around and see if you can pick up anything useful. <laughs> Tar very much. And visually, how did he manage to kind of keep that stop motion aesthetic going? Uh, was that quite difficult to, to find a, a way of doing that digitally? Well, so interestingly, it was a point of discussion early on and, and con- concern that Ardman wasn't quite sure, you know, how cool it was possible for it to look since it's so stop motion. What, what could we pull off? Would, he, would it even be right to see Wallace and Gromit in AR if it didn't feel like they're, you know, the characters and stuff? So they weren't sure. Um, and we're, we're really surprised by what our, our 3D modeler, Lee Bowditch, has been able to pull off. I mean, it's, it's really lovely. Most people think it's clay. Uh, you know, it is CG. Wallace and Gromit started as clay and they, they scanned them. And then we use that to create our CG models. Amazing. I mean, I hope you're getting to keep those original clay figures. <laughs> We've just been talking about it. They are, they are locked away in a glass case on display in yep. Merlin Crossingham's office. And um, the the thing is, they don't last forever. They have to be really well kept and wrapped and stuff. And so we've actually just been talking about how best to preserve those uh, in the long run. I know you had planned to have a live finale moment in Bristol with people gathering there. And obviously you've pivoted that section to be more of an at-home experience. But do you think the future of AR is around these more social experiences that are kind of geolocated or happen together in a certain place? My expectation of the future and the stages that will it'll take to get there is that there will be a, a, an AR layer in the world around us, you know, that'll start in cities and it'll expand out from there. Uh, and there'll be probably more than one of these that companies can tap into and tell stories that will be, you know, sort of a layer on top of the city. I suspect AR and VR will eventually combine into one lovely, you know, pair of glasses on your face. And that's how we'll have these experiences. Is there a bit of friction in terms of having to have this device in front of you? So I love AR, but for me, there's still that 
slight thing of I've got to hold this thing and look through this definitely little screen. And, and that's why it's all about yeah. glasses and, and eventually, you know, probably a chip in your brain that even replaces the glasses. <laughs> you know, this, it sucks having to hold something in front of you. You know, there's no way around that. And it's definitely had to, it's inspired some of our decision making, right? About how long an AR interaction can be. This is something Tavi yeah. spent a lot of time on, how, you know, in terms of user fatigue of holding something in front of you, you know, how much you have to turn it for landscape versus vertical, you know, all these things, because you've got this arbitrary piece of glass in front of you that as soon as you can have your hands free, there's, there's so much more you can do. And you can imagine a future where you put on your glasses and you drive up out of the subway and you look around and it's like, which AR experience do I want to have today? You, you, you kind of even wonder how detailed anyone's house is going to be anymore. If you've got AR goggles on, you probably want a really plain house with a lot of walls that you can project things onto, you know? Thank you so much for joining me, Susan and Tavi. It's been a real pleasure. Both Niantic and Fictioneers have shown what is possible in the AR space. Huge scale, low friction, and the ability to monetize through different models. There are definitely things to consider, like the real world environment that your player is in and how that might impact your audience issues of accessibility, and also how you progress story. AR might have once been the gimmicky magazine cover that's brought to life through your phone, but it's got so much potential now, particularly when 5G will no doubt boost the performance of some of these devices. It's worth bearing in mind that the smartphone is only 13 years old, and see how far we've come with it in that time. But perhaps with AR storytelling, we're about to see an explosion of geolocated or at-home experiences that we can really feel part of, as well as share with other people. With a host of big tech brands developing AR glasses, from Qualcomm to Apple, the jury's out on whether they'll become as ubiquitous as the phone itself. But there's definitely an opportunity to really think about the kinds of AR or mixed reality experiences that you could help shape with story at its core. As with all the programmes in this series, you can explore the subjects we've been discussing through the links in our show notes, and also by viewing the Story Futures Academy podcast pages on the website. That's storyfutures.com forward slash podcast. On the next episode, we'll be discussing what it takes to manage an immersive production with two of the UK's most prominent XR producers, Zilla Watson, who headed up the BBC's VR hub, and Katie Grayson, head of Passion Experience. See you then. Story Futures Academy is the UK's National Centre for Immersive Storytelling and is funded as part of UKRI's Audience of the Future Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund. <laughs> <laughs>